going to be uh, bringing the word this morning, and uh, I'm really excited to bring it to you. Uh, I think it'll be I think it'll be good for all of us. So let's pray. Lord, we honor you. We thank you, God, so much for your presence already being here. You're so worthy of worship. You're so worthy of our time. And now, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would do what you always do, and that is to be faithful to speak and to confirm your word. And I do pray, Father, for each and every one of us that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. And may they not even hear me, may they hear you in this, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, this morning I want to talk to you about this idea uh, that, I'm, that I'm calling the turnaround. Uh, that's the title of today's message, is the turnaround. And uh, to kind of paint a picture of where, where we're going to go here this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the story and the imagery a little bit of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a, a Bible character that I absolutely love. I think the guy was just such a strong leader. It's probably one of the best pictures of leadership in Scripture. And to kind of give it to you in a nutshell, the, the nation of Israel, after they had been conquered, uh, the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed, the people had been taken into captivity, and now were living in Babylon, and then later the, the Medes and the Persians came. And so for a, a great while, the people of God were, were decimated and, and, and spent about 70 years not uh, living in, in their own nation. And so they lived in captivity. And so at a certain point in time, when the 70 years were, was completed, uh, a, a decent number of these J Jewish people returned to their homeland to rebuild and to restore their, their land. Uh, but the problem was is that their homeland was in ruins. It was a mess. And so uh, Nehemiah is introduced to us in the book of Nehemiah as the king's cupbearer. And he shows up on the scene, and his job is to, to wait on the king and to be there for him and all that sort of thing. And he gets word of the condition of Israel, and the condition of Israel is not very good. That the, the, the actual city of Jerusalem, it says, is in ruins. The, the wall that, would that used to surround the city had been broken down, and the gates had been burned, and it was in rough shape. And so the people were exposed. The people were vulnerable. And so Nehemiah seeks the Lord, and uh, to make a long story short, finds himself coming to his native land. He comes to Jerusalem, and he surveys the scene, and he looks around and takes an account of what's going on. And he says something to the people that I think that just really gripped me. I read this several weeks ago. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, Nehemiah says, then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. So, I have a few ideas here that I really, I want you to get this. I want you to see how the imagery of this really applies to our lives, and then we'll, we'll take some steps forward of how to apply it. But what I want you to see, you can take that down for the moment, Sherry, I'll, I'll call for it in a, in a bit, is I want you to picture a city with rocks laying around. It says that Nehemiah and his donkey could not get to certain parts of the city because the rocks 
that were broken down were literally in the way. The rubble was in the way. And the donkey couldn't even walk through all the rubble. And so we have this imagery of people that are living in shame and disgrace. We have people that are in distress. We have people that are having a very difficult time because the enemy could pounce on them at any moment. They don't feel safe. They don't feel secure. They actually feel very vulnerable. And so Nehemiah shows up and he says, we need to end this disgrace. We need to not be so exposed. What we really need is to build a wall of protection. And I want you to see the imagery how this is going to apply to our own personal lives today. Because in our own lives, we are like the city of Jerusalem in this, in this situation. And if we don't have a wall of protection around us, we are vulnerable to the demonic attacks of the enemy. Several weeks ago, I was really having a hard time going through intense spiritual warfare. It, it just seemed like almost every day, I just wanted to run away. I told Tim, I said, I don't want to quit. I just want to run away. I'll come back when everything gets better. You know what I mean? You feel like that year's been that way for you? Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I was over this in July. I don't want to do this anymore. I have been discouraged. I have been disgusted. I have felt weak and I have felt powerless. I have felt fearful and I have felt afraid. I've had anxiety. I have felt abandoned. I have felt uh, like, like the enemy just has had days where he just walked right onto my turf and just walked, squatted on my property, and I had no wall, no way to protect myself. I was having a conversation with Rachel. I said, I, said, I, I get to the office on Tuesday, and I just, I dread, I dread the things that I have to do. I dread that the situations that are before me, and it's not like it was just one thing, because most of the time I think I can tackle one thing, but it's like four things, and they're all, this is stressing me out, and this is wearing me out, and that I don't even want to deal with, because it's just too, it's, it's too hard to even go there. And so I, I have to make these moves and these decisions, and I'm trying to navigate my own insecurities, and my own fears, and my own fear man. And in all this time, I said to Rachel, I said, I just, I know I shouldn't be struggling. And I know that if I was believing the truth up here, that the enemy wouldn't be able to assault me in these areas of my life. But I feel so powerless because I don't even know what the lie is, let alone what the truth is that, I'm, that I need to get. And so I, I have gone... You know, there's, there, I think you guys can maybe relate with this. It's like, you know, most of the time I like my life. Most of the time I can sleep at night. Most of the time I'm not overly anxious. But then there are moments when the attack comes, when spiritual warfare happens. And it, it's no, no doubt that when we, when we make those moves to advance, that's when the warfare seems to pick up. Whether it's around Easter for us or, or maybe it's a certain, when you're trying to reach out to a certain person. It's almost like all of hell comes at you and you, you, you just get the crud kicked out of you. 
and you're wrestling and you don't know, I mean, I, I can't, there are times when it gets so intense, I can't believe the thoughts that are in my own head. Because if I listen to those thoughts, I would run away. I would probably sin or say thing I really, something I really wish I wouldn't say. And so when we, we go through these times and these situations, I'll go months at a time and everything's good and I'm at peace. But when the enemy comes, he just comes right through the door. And it's almost like I don't even know how to war. I don't know how to fight back. And so coming back to this, this imagery of Nehemiah, the Lord today is saying it's time to build a wall. And for many of us, you have a wall, but you've got gaps in the wall. And it's like you're not being attacked over here, and you're not being attacked over there. You're being attacked in the same thing every time. And it's like you're going, you're marching, you're marching, and boom, something, someone happens, and you're, and you, and you're defenseless. The name Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts, or Yahweh is your comforter. And so Nehemiah, I believe, is a picture representing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is many things. He's our, he's our counselor, he's our advocate, but one of the things he is, is he's our comforter. The Holy Spirit comes to comfort. And so Nehemiah is this, there's this imagery of the Holy Spirit came, is, is, this is what he's doing in my life, and I, this is what I believe the Lord wants to do today, is the Holy Spirit saying, it's time to build a wall. It's time to plug those gaps. It's time to put up those gates. And, and I, lo I love the wording. It's just so interesting the way Nehemiah worded it. When I, I was gripped by this verse when I read it several weeks ago. In verse 17, you can bring it up now, Sherry. You see the distress we are in. Are we in distress? Are we having problems sleeping? Are we feeling anxious? Are we needing to maybe take medication to help us cope with things. We feel this distress. And it says, Jerusalem lies in waste. Salem is, that's peace, the city of peace. The place of peace lies in waste. And its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. And this is the phrase that, I don't know why, but this is the phrase that gripped me the most. That we may no longer be a reproach. Isn't that interesting? You know, my, my first thought is that we can be protected. But he's associating this wall. If we build up a wall, it will remove our shame. It will remove our disgrace. Interesting, I think. Because... I think the thing is, is that when we leave gaps in our wall, when we leave the door open, so to speak, to the enemy, the end result is shame. So when we look at our lives, look at the places right now in your life that there's shame. And then we're going to work backwards a little bit today. But I want you to see that this thought. That the cause is not shame, but the result is. The enemy comes 
and we believe lies. That's, that's really what this is about. This is about us believing lies about ourselves. This is us believing lies about God. This is us believing lies about our circumstances. So we, when we believe a lie, we have gaps. But when we get into the scriptures, when we listen to our comforter, when we listen to that voice, we build something. It's truth. Truth is built upon truth. And as we build our lives on what is true, the enemy, the areas where we used to be assaulted and attacked, we're no longer vulnerable. We're no longer, the enemy can't get you there. Why? I just, I got a breakthrough. I got truth. I got revelation. I, the lie was replaced. Truth came in and then truth was built on truth. And now when the enemy comes in, he can't attack me. He can't assault me. So to give you an idea to help you process what I'm talking about today, we have a door here on the stage, and I, I really appreciate Pastor Tim. You guys have been like, we've been waiting for a long time for you to explain that door. <laughs> yeah, I got around to it. Pastor Tim uh, kind of got this set up for me, and I appreciate him doing that because technically this was supposed to be his, you know, his uh, week of having a break. He was supposed to have this week kind of low-key, and, and that's why I'm preaching, to let him kind of focus on the future. And... And I said, hey, Tim, you know, can you help me? And I need a door. And luckily, Tim was very helpful. So the thing is, is those gaps where the enemy blows in are actually very small, small gaps. They're small little things. And so the imagery here is that of a door. And so you, you may or may not see that great, but this door is open a crack. It's open just a little bit. And it's the little things that cause big, big explosions. It is little things that cause our shame. So to, to kind of give you an idea of what this looks like, when I was um, in high school, I found myself you know, being discipled by the world. And I had some messed up ways of thinking. And so... A simple illustration of what this can look like is the area of lust and sexuality, which for me was a bondage in my high school years. And so I believed, I would say probably not great big lies, but small ones. And so I believed that from my understanding was that Daniel, the Bible says that sex outside of marriage is wrong and it is a sin. So obviously, that was true. So in my brain, I thought it was, I reasoned that it was okay for me to dabble with some things because that wasn't going all the way. I had the mentality of, I should not look at pornography, I should not look at naked women, but it's okay if they're in a bikini. You know, it's, it's wrong to fantasize about having sex, but it's okay to fantasize other things. I thought it was okay to look down at a woman's shirt, and so I had these, these dumb ideas, and these dumb ideas were like a crack in my, in my door, so to speak, or a gap in my wall. And so the enemy puts, gets me to believe a little lie, and then... He blows through the door 
And it's not just this little crack anymore. It's blown wide open. It's out of control. And what began to happen is a lifestyle of addiction and a lifestyle of shame. Because the thing is, is that when we take the bait, it leads to embarrassment. Maybe you've lost your temper. Maybe you've been in inappropriate relationships. Maybe you've been to some places online you have no business being in. But you see, when we, when we let these little, it's just the little thoughts. It's just those little gaps that cause it all to blow apart. And then we're being controlled and we're in shame. And so Nehemiah says, we have to make a wall because let's end our disgrace. Because fighting the enemy, you know, we do, we do these kinds of things like we leave the gap. This is okay. Have you ever found yourself arguing with yourself? It's okay, I can handle it. It's okay, it didn't mean anything. It's okay, I, I've technically forgiven them. You know, we, we do a lot of things, and we argue with ourselves, and I wonder how many times we're arguing with the Holy Spirit. I mean, I know from experience, I've argued a lot with, I thought it was myself, but it was the Holy Spirit. For years, the Holy Spirit would be like, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. No, no, it's okay, I'm not legalistic. No, no, I can handle it. No, no, and so, and then we, and then it happens again. I, I, all right, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'll never do this again. I will never drink that drink again. I will never do that drug again. I will never put myself, and we just, it's just the cycle of little gaps, the little thoughts that we don't think matter. And then we wonder why we're over here, we're out of control. And it's like we're trying to hold back the darkness. We're pushing, we're pushing back, like don't come in my land. And then the devil just walks right on in because your door is wide open. And so today, we need, by the Holy Spirit's grace, we need to close this door. We cannot leave it open even a crack. A little bit of poison can kill you. A little bit laced in is toxic. We have got to close the door. Well, how do we close the door? Well, it comes by removing a lie and replacing it with truth. And this is why we, I know we sound like we're banging the same drum, but we need to be in the scriptures. We need truth. We need to posture ourselves in position where we can hear what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us. But I, but I also want to make it clear, I'm not just talking about reading your Bible. You can read your Bible every day and still walk deceived. What we need is the comforter to teach us as we read. We need the comforter to teach us as we live our lives. And so we need to listen to that voice. Now, there are so many lies. I mean, we're, you know, if, you're, if you're doing sermon prep and you're bringing forth big ideas, but you, all, you also want to bring some practical application, like what do we need to do, God? 
what is the, what's the application? And so there's so many lies that we have believed. And there's probably just like every person here is probably believing a different one. So how do you help people navigate this? And, and I want to look at kind of a, an interesting passage of scripture looking at the life of Elijah of how the enemy assaulted him and some things that we can see how the enemy assaults us. Because I think if we can see some of the main ways the enemy assaults us, it will help us to process listening to the Holy Spirit and learning how to, okay, Holy Spirit, what is the lie I'm believing? That's a good practice. I'm getting better at it. Holy Spirit, what is the lie that I'm believing? And then I listen. And then, all right, Holy Spirit, what is the truth that I need to hear? What is it that I need to hear from you? And so we're going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. So Elijah is a prophet of God, kind of a big deal in Scripture, and he has just accomplished what I think many would call a great victory. Elijah, I mean, he is a tough dude. I mean, he's like, he's all that. The guy starts out his ministry, he shows up in the Scripture, coming up to the king of Israel and says, hey, just so you know, I'm giving a prophetic word here. There will be no rain until I say there will be rain. The end. And he walks out the door because the people were not obeying God. So, so for about three and a half years, there is a drought over the entire nation. And the king is looking for Elijah. Because he knows that it hasn't rained since Elijah gave that word. So he shows up onto the scene and appears to the king and says, all right, let's have a duel. You and me, get all the prophets of Baal, the, which is a different God that they had been the nation had kind of been following. And he's like, I'll be on God, Yahweh's team, I'll be on God's team, and you guys will be on Baal's team, and we're going to have a duel to see who is the real God. And I'm like, man, I wish God would do this kind of stuff today. You know, put, put it on, put on the news and have a duel. Like, all right, this is the way it's going to work. I build an altar, you build an altar. There's 450 of these prophets, one prophet for Yahweh. Yah Yahweh's got one guy. The whole nation turns out to watch. It's like a big football game. The crowd is, is watching to find out. And he says, all right, guys. Half, you know, you're following two gods here. One, you're following Yahweh, but you're also following Baal. You got this weird thing multi-god thing going on. All right, let's, let's decide once and for all who's worth following. All right, you guys go and ask your god to send fire from heaven. And they do that for hours, and they get nothing. And then Elijah says, all right, I'm going to call down fire from my god. Let's see what happens. And he says, but just to make it interesting, let's just pour a bunch of water on the altar. You know, I want to I make this very clear that this, and they pour a bunch of water, and he's like, that's not enough, more. And, he, and they're dousing this, this altar with water. And he says, all right, God, 
know, could you only imagine how cool it would be on the news? And then all of a sudden, fire comes falling from the sky, and and all the people fall on their knees, say, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. They're like, holy crap, we're scared. We're scared. Your God is all that. And he says, all right, let's kill these 450 false prophets. They killed these prophets. And, you know, Elijah is very pumped in this moment. And he has a full-on agenda. And the agenda is, I want, by God's grace, to bring a nation back to God. I want to bring the people of God back to God. And so he tells King Ahab, expect rain, you better get home before the rain stops you. Elijah prays, rain falls like a torrential downpour, and you would think that everything's going to be different, that this is the turnaround for the nation. And then in verse 19, we see what happens. It's very interesting passage. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Now Jezebel is the queen's wife. Sorry, no, she's not. She's the king's wife. Just making sure you're awake. I did that on purpose. So the king's wife, she's very wicked. And she sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, the the guys he killed, by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. It's so interesting to me. Here he is, the man of God. He has just stood up to 450 false prophets. He has just stood up to the king. He has just stood up to thousands of men and just one. And one death threat from the queen sent him in a panic. I personally believe the reason why this, this so happened is like why he was so affected by this is because there was a spiritual component to it. I believe that when she released that letter, there was a spirit associated with it, a demonic spirit. And that Elijah got hit, he got through his armor, and he was assaulted, I believe, demonically. And out of that place of fear... He ran. The man of God left his post. The man of God left his position because he was afraid. And I'm like, ooh, that sounds familiar. I, I think, you know, I, I like to run away sometimes too. And sometimes it is fear that causes me to want to run away. And so he runs away out of the nation and he gets into the nation of Judah, and he gets to the near southeastern point of the land, drops his servant off, and now he's alone. He's isolating himself. And it says in verse 4, 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. So he is continuing to head south, and we know from the rest of the story that he's actually heading to Mount Sinai, the place where Moses met God on the mountain. And so he is isolating, he is running, he is afraid, and he's depressed. He is exhausted emotionally and physically. And in this place of vulnerability and weakness, we see there are several lies in this scripture that reveal the condition of how Elijah got to this point. First of all, I find it interesting that he runs away from Jezebel because he's afraid of dying. But then he gets under the broom tree and just says, God, please kill me. Please just take me out. (laughs) I don't know why that, does that make sense to you? I'm running away because I'm scared. Oh, Lord, just kill me. Just take me. It's like, well, you could have just stayed there. It would have happened. You know, you don't need God to kill you. Just let Jezebel do it. No. But I believe that we see here one of the main ways I believe the enemy lies to us, and it comes out of his heart. After he prays that he would die, he says, It is enough. Now take my life, and this is it. For I am no better than my father's. I am no better than my father's. I believe that one of the the main ways we allow the enemy in to assault us, to torment us, is attacking our identity. I am. How many times have you made I am statements about yourself? I am no good. I am worthless. I am stupid. I am. And we, we, I think we get so used to the way we talk to ourselves that we don't even know we're doing it. We just, we just have these little, little gap where we don't think we're valuable. We don't think about ourselves like God thinks. I know I mentioned, I mean, there's, there's so many ways you can, examples you could use, but I know that our sexuality is such an identity issue. And I know I already mentioned this, but I'll, I'll, I'm going to hit up this again. I have worked with many people in the area of walking in sexual purity. And so many times, the, the bondage is actually not so much a sexual issue as much as it is an identity issue. Because here's the thing. If you leave that door open and say, no one wants me, will anybody want to marry me? Then you, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this door open from very godly people. Because if I don't sleep with them, they're going to leave me. If I don't give away my body to them, then I might be alone. Well, will anybody want me? And we stay, in, in, in some cases, in dysfunctional relationships. Not even just sexual. 
We'll stay in friendships with people who tear us down, but we'll leave that door open, and then it just, it just causes for our death. Leaving ungodly, unhelpful people in our lives because we believe lies about us. They tear us down. Well, they, they should tear me down. Why do you put up with that? Because you believe it. But I'll tell you what, I sure hope this helps somebody. But I believe one of the, the big issues with sexual immorality is that oftentimes the woman on the magazine or the woman or man of your fantasy wants you. It's a powerful thing to be wanted. They may not be real, but we all have a craving to be wanted, to be valuable. And so we leave doors open and those lies that we believe about ourselves and cause things to fall apart. Why? Why do we leave these things? Because we're looking for somebody to answer the question. The question is, who am I? The question is, am I enough? The question is, am I valuable? God looks at you with so much love, so much acceptance, so much affirmation. God is enthralled with you. He thinks better about you than you think about you. I know that we've had so much misunderstanding about what pride is, but I think our screwed up, warped up, messed up idea of pride is what causes us to believe these lies. And out of those places of, God, I'm no better. I, I know I screwed up with Jezebel, and I ran away from my post, and I should have been here. I'm a failure, God. I should have been doing this all along, but I dropped the ball again, because I always drop the ball. And we just play right into the enemy's hands. We need to listen and start paying attention to the self-talk. It is the self-talk that is so destructive to our lives. You didn't sin because you're evil. If you're a Christian, you're not evil anymore. You are a brand new creation. You have a brand new nature. Your old nature is dead. You, when you were baptized, you buried it. You, and when Jesus died on the cross, he died naked. Buck naked. No loincloth, nothing. His, he was exposed, full-on shame for everybody. It was a disgrace, and he took that for you and for me. He didn't just take our sin. He didn't just take our sickness. He took our shame. Adam and Eve were naked, and they felt no shame. They sinned, and they knew they were naked. When we sin, there's a vulnerability. There's a shame. And so we want to cover up. But you've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't need to waste your time trying to do the whole fig leaf thing. It's just not going to work for you. You don't, if you sin in your past, when, why do you talk so ashamed about it when we talk about it? Does that make sense? If you've sinned in your past, and you've been set free by Jesus, you can talk about it and be open about it and vulnerable about it because there's no shame anymore. I, you know, I was just thinking this morning, it's been 20 years since Jesus set me free from my sexual addiction. It was October of 2000. I'm like, wow, 20 years of freedom. I'm thankful. 
I am single because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And he took my shame so I can talk to you about it because that, I'm dead to that. I'm free from that. And so we can't keep partnering with this self-talk. I remember in my early 20s being a youth pastor, and if you know Chris and Jeannie Wilson, they, not Wilson, Nelson. I got my other people, Nelson. Chris and Jeannie Nelson, they helped me in youth ministry. And I would make comments about myself that were negative. But do you know something? I didn't notice I did it. I did not even realize I talked that way to myself. And Jeannie would say, she just turned to me one day, why do you talk like that? And she just, it was really a rebuke. And I just was like, oh. But I was kind of annoyed. I was like, don't, talk, don't tell me how to think about myself. I can do this. And she, and she, she just full on rebuked me. Like, you, you, stop it. It's not true. And you need to stop thinking and talking about yourself. And so every time I would get around her, I'd start talking nice to myself because I didn't want her to correct me. But we have got to change the way we think about us because the enemy is like, yeah, you don't want to be prideful. You don't want to think you're valuable. You don't want to think you're anything special. You're right, God, I'm grovel. I'm dirt. I'm worthless. I'm nothing. And then the enemy comes in and and he brings things into our lives after we believe that lie and then we take the bait. So, moving on in our, in our story here. So he says, I'm no better than my father's. And then, uh, I'm going to kind of paraphrase the next few verses. And then God, th- uh, through an angel, gives him food that gives him strength to get to Mount Sinai. So now he is still depressed. He's still in a pit. He's still not in a good place. And I, I think that Elijah is really given up and he's just like, God, I need you. I need an encounter with you. I need a breakthrough. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm running away from my nation. I'm running away from my post. I'm running away from my people. I am running to the mountain of God because I need God. I need a touch from God. And so in verse 9, he comes to a cave. And most scholars believe it was the cave where Moses uh, was hidden when God came by and showed him his glory. So he is in a very holy place. In verse 9, it says, And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't it interesting how God questions us? Daniel, how did you get here? Why are you here? I'm pretty sure God knows. But God's doing what they teach you to do with counseling. You know, ask some good questions. Pull it out of them. So here we see God, the divine counselor. How did you get here? What's wrong? What's going on inside of you? And now Elijah is going to tell us really what's going on. Verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. So now God is pulling out of him what's inside of him. And he says, I 
alone am left. And I just, I believe that is one of the main lies we believe from the enemy. God is just you and me. I'm all alone. Have you ever been there? You know, you got friends, you got people in your life, they love you and support you, but the truth be told is that when you get into a pit, you just feel so lonely. You feel so isolated. And you do it, we do it to ourselves. He had a servant, and he's like, nope, you stay here. I'm going off by myself. And I just believe that one of the cracks in our door is when we self-isolate and we don't let other people that are good for us into our lives. And I just, I, I wish I could be more profound with this statement, but I think that it kind of speaks for itself. When we get to those places of, of loneliness, God, I'm the only, you ever been in the Elijah complex where it's like, God, I'm the only one being faithful to you. I don't know where everybody else is. You know, we see things happening in our world today and, 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 and in the church and we, on a macro level. And, and I think we can be discouraged by the state of the church. Because the pandemic has revealed, I think, in many ways where the church is really at and where we've been going. I heard one person say the pandemic has just sped everything up. And so I think we can get into this place of believing a lie that there's only a few people out there that really love God or there's only a few people out there that they all abandoned me, God. They're not there for me. No one understands me. I'm all alone. And a little bit later in this story, God says, Elijah, I actually have 7,000 others that have never bowed down to Baal. You're not the only one. I actually have a lot more going on than you think. And I think that sometimes, you know, Rachel, you have permission to preach this sermon back to me when I get to these places, okay? I'm just saying. I'm not saying I have this figured out. But sometimes when we are in a place of depression or discouragement or belief, the enemy wants us to think, hey, nobody's there for you. They all forsook you. Well, I know that there, and I know that, you know, you ever had that happen? Well, I know they're there for me, and I know I've got people there, but, you know, I just still feel alone. But the truth is, is we are not alone. And the people of God are not just, there's not just four of us. There is a kingdom, there is an army that God is building, and the enemy doesn't want you to see the powerhouse that God is going to raise up out of the ruins. So, so that's the second lie that I think is very common is that isolation and loneliness. But then the third one is in the same passage I just read to you, and that is, I've been zealous, but those people, they forsook your covenant, they've torn down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And that is, is I believe the enemy tries to take away our hope. I believe that Elijah if you, if, you, if, you, if you look at his train of thought of what he's trying, he is trying to turn the corner. He's trying to turn things around. He is wanting to turn the nation back to God. And I think that when Jezebel sent her thing and he ran away, it just felt like hopeless. God, 
we pour in, and it doesn't get any better. I tried before, and nothing ever changes. We try to do this, and we try to do that, and we try to go here, and there's just no hope for this situation. Well, I know I've prayed. I know I've tried. I know I've done this. But the enemy, if you have an area where you lack hope, it is because you're believing a lie. It is because there is a gap in your wall, there's a lie in your heart, because you're not partnering with the right spirit. Yes, Rachel, you can preach that to me too. We have to get the truth and close those gaps. And so, coming back to the story here, there's obviously way more lies the enemy wants to feed us. But these are just a few that I think that we need to pay attention to. Because sometimes, if we start paying attention to, why am I anxious right now? How did I get here? I'm almost thinking backwards. Why am I anxious? Why am I angry? Why do I feel alone? And partnering with the Holy Spirit in community, in relationship. We see here in verse 11, Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. I wish we could just spend a lot of time dissecting this passage because it's amazing, but I want to just glean a, couple, a little, little idea out of this. You got the wind, you got the earthquake, and you got the fire. And it says that God wasn't in any of that. Isn't that weird? I think God's saying to Elijah, what you need is not the big signs and wonders. What you need to know is how I operate. I transform the world not by all this supernatural, amazing phenomenon. I transform the world by speaking. I transform the world by a still, small voice. And he goes on to give him instructions. I want you to go and anoint this guy to be the king of Syria. I want you to anoint this guy to be the king of Israel. And I want you to anoint this guy to take your place as, the, as a prophet of God. So we see here God saying, you're, you're not alone. I have a plan. But what you need and what's going to turn this whole thing around is listening to my voice. The still, the small, the quiet. Julie, do you want to come up, come up here? It'll help me land this plane. I've had a lot of conversations with people, and I think that there's a lot of us that would say, I'm not a prophet, or I'm not prophetic, 
so I don't hear God's voice. Or I don't hear God's voice very well. Like there are people that are prophets and then there's everybody else. And this morning, I believe the Lord wanted me to say to you that you need to have a, a, a right grid for this. And that is, is prophets don't necessarily... God's sheep hear God's voice. So you need to understand very clearly, you hear God. It is not even a question. You wouldn't even be here if you did not hear God's voice. And for those of you watching online, I just feel like the Lord wants to say to you, you hear God's voice. You do. You may not recognize it. You may not know what it sounds like and be able to discern it and pick it up all the time. But the Holy Spirit today wants you to know you hear God. Do not devalue your ability to hear God. The prophet's job is to equip you to recognize that you hear God. That is, that's, the, that's the primary role of a prophet. It's not that prophets hear God and other people don't. It's that the prophet equips the body of Christ to hear God for themselves. And I believe the Lord is saying, because I, I think I was almost like, well, God, so many people get anxious about hearing your voice. And if I tell them just to listen to your voice, and, and I feel like the Lord was like, they hear it. They know it. And like I said earlier, sometimes we argue and wrestle, and we think we're wrestling with ourselves. But you need to pay attention. Because when God speaks, it does not sound like wind, or it does not sound like fire. It does not sound like the obvious. It sounds still and quiet. It sounds so, so subtle But as we posture ourselves with expectation, expecting God to speak to you. One thing that I think kind of helps me, I'll just say this to you guys. When I ask God a question, and I have a lot of them, when I ask him those questions, I don't know if I have, like, I expect God to answer me, my question but I don't always expect him to answer it in the moment. So I'll ask God a question and sometimes he'll tell me right away. But I keep asking the question because I know he's going to tell it to me and sometimes it can be on Thursday, sometimes it's progressive and slowly unveils it. And I think that if you put a lot of pressure on yourself to hear God, all right God, what it, is there any lies I'm believing? Well, nothing came to my mind. Okay, well, I don't hear God. That is, I think, can be a little bit harmful. I think that if you understand, God, what's wrong with me? God, what lie am I believing? I didn't hear anything in the moment, so I'll just go out my day and I'll, I'll just keep asking God because God's going to reveal it to me. Why? Well, I just have a faith. I have a faith for it. I have a confidence in it. And I just, 
I just know that if I just keep asking him, he's going eventually, a day or two, an hour or two, or maybe in the moment, God's going to talk to me. And you are going to hear God's voice and you're going to, and you, you might very well have to say this, you're probably going to fight against it. God's going to be like, you're valuable. And you're like, I don't know if I believe this. <laughs> or maybe you will believe it and then you've got to learn to apply it to your life into your sick situation. Because a lot of times what God does is he speaks the truth and then he withdraws and you don't hear him. I uh, recently was in a situation where it felt like God stopped talking and God stopped being involved. And, I, and then the next day, I woke up and the Lord's presence was back. God speaking was back. And I said to God, I was kind of perturbed, I said, where were you when I needed you? I'm so glad you're back. I mean, he didn't leave, but the presence lifted. And I'm like, what? where were you when I needed you? And God said to me, I had to leave. Because for you to get the truth down deep into you, you have to learn how to apply it when I'm not uh, making it, when you're not feeling it, when you're not sensing it. So he brings the truth and then he withdraws. Now, I'm, I don't want to, I'm using terminology. I'm not saying God leaves. I'm just saying he hides himself. And he's right there, but he's hiding. And you're just like, I don't feel God. That's okay. You just need to be faithful with what he just told you. And you need to operate in faith with who he is and what he said. And what he says about you. What he says about you is one of the most important things you can remember in a crisis. When you don't feel God and you feel abandoned by God, it is in those moments where you have to take the revelation, the truth that he's given to you, and you hold on to that when you do not feel him or feel like it's the truth at all. And you operate in that truth, and eventually he'll re-manifest and, and you'll, you'll be back on track again. But it's, it's, that's, how he, that's how he works faith into us, not being feeling Christians, but faith Christians. You guys should probably stand, or I'm just going to keep going. The Lord, I really believe, wants to do a turnaround. I really believe it. But the turnaround oftentimes does not come in the big and the in-your-face it's in the little things. We want God, God, show up, show up with pizzazz, do something supernatural, do something amazing. And God says, well, I do that sometimes, but really what you need is to know that you're believing a lie. We need to uproot that lie. We need to close the door and build up truth. And that is how the turnaround happens. The turnaround is hearing the voice of God and then doing it, responding, being faithful with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you so much, God, for your word, because your word is truth, and it is exalted above every experience, in every lie, in every feeling. Your word, God, is established, and we honor you, God. And I give you the praise, Lord, for 
you giving me this message, God, is this is not what I would have picked to preach on. But Lord, I believe that you have, this is for some people, both in this room and online. And I just pray, God, for those that are watching online and for those that are in this room, God, that you would give them a fresh touch of grace. Lord, I pray that you, they would be equipped to hear, to discern, and to recognize your voice. God, I pray that they would, they would be so in a place of, of just knowing that they're the beloved, knowing that they're your favorite, knowing how you feel about them, how you care about each and every one of us. God, I pray that we would all live in that place of peace and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.